This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your pretentious and sophomore host, Mason Menega. Religionless Church history has been made, with this episode being the first two-part episode. In this first part of a two-part episode, I talk with both David Roberts and David Cogden. David Roberts is the youth pastor at Watershed. Watershed is a progressive, non-denominational church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is also a student at Fuller Theological Seminary and a lover of all things superheroes. David Cogden is the acquisitions editor at University Press of Kansas. He is also a theologian and a former guest on Religionless Church. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Ellie Schmidley. Ellie is a solo indie pop artist. You can get connected with David Roberts, David Cogden, and Ellie and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is to become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church.
today we have David Roberts and David Cogden. David Cogden is the very first. I need to find my Skype up. There we go. Uh, David Cogden is the first second timer on Religionless Church. How about that? I don't know if that feels like you should be honored or if that feels like I'm being a little like stalkerish. I don't know how you feel about that, but you are the second timer. Uh, David Roberts is a good friend of mine that we met over a year ago now. I don't even remember exactly when or where we met. Two years ago, uh, almost at the Open Conference in India. Was it? Was it at? Okay, I didn't realize yep. it was that. All right. So we, we've been friends for two years now, um, and these two had a really interesting Twitter thread conversation probably a couple weeks ago now. And we were like, we, we sort of chimed in on like a, a little private message and we were like, we need to, we need to have like an actual conversation with our faces involved with this. Uh, so uh, we're making it happen. Uh, before we get to that though, I've already asked Cogden about who David Cogden is to David Cogden. But I need to ask you now, David Roberts, who is David Roberts to David Roberts? Gotcha. Yeah. So this is kind of like the uh, the the pastor, husband, father, you know, Twitter profile. <laughs> right. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, David Roberts is. Let's see. Who's your audience? David Roberts is an Enneagram Five. <laughs> um, nice. David Roberts is a youth pastor working at a. Um, we call it a. Uh, what do we call our church? I work at a church. I'm a youth pastor at a church called Watershed. It's a kind of progressive, non-denominational uh, faith community or spiritual community in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I am a grad student at Fuller Theological Seminary, mostly online, and uh, I'm a huge, I'm a huge Godzilla fan. I think really? this is a space where I can uh, where I can name that David. Kong and I have talked about that a little bit uh, yes, in other have. other mediums, but um, but no, I'm staring at a um, I, I'm staring at a closet that has a whole bunch of artwork that my wife will not currently let me display anywhere in our house. And <laughs> one of my most prized possessions is a uh, is a Godzilla piece, and so that, that's what made me think of that. That's a shame. I, it, it, I've got plans for it. <laughs> so I know there's like. Probably, I mean, I feel like this is an accurate number. There's like a billion King Kong movies. Are there not? Um, I think there's like 12 or, I don't know, 8. I can okay. think of, I mean. Do you, have you seen all of them? There might be some Japanese ones I haven't seen. Okay. Because there, there was a brief period where, where uh, Toho, the company that makes Godzilla, uh, got a hold of some Kong rights and, and made a few movies. And I'm not sure I've seen all of those. Okay, interesting. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I knew that there was a billion of them. And uh, I don't know. I didn't know if you had like a favorite one or anything like that. But probably. I've got a favorite Godzilla movie. I don't know if I've got a favorite Kong movie. Okay. Oh, maybe it was uh, Godzilla that I was thinking that there's like an excessive oh, yeah, amount. Yeah. There's like 32 of them or 30, 28. I don't know. There's a bunch. Yeah, just like way too many. Uh, so now that we got that out of the way, that's kind of, yeah, you probably felt all left out cognitive. Um, so, uh, let's get to the heart of the matter. What inspired this Twitter thread? Uh, so, uh, David Cogden, you were the one that sort of had this Twitter thread and I just want you to kind of take us through what inspired it and what exactly was it that you said 
that now has inspired this conversation. Yeah, right. So, and, and by the way, thank you for having me back. It's nice to be back in the podcast. <laughs> um, well, the the thread itself was inspired, I guess, to, so to speak, um, by the information, the news that I received uh, that morning uh, that Incarnation Ministries uh, was shutting down. And Incarnation Ministries, for those who don't know, uh, is a progressive LGBTQ affirming uh, student campus ministry. It's it was started by some ex-InterVarsity uh, staff who uh, left after InterVarsity made their uh, kind of anti-LGBT policies uh, known and kicked people out. Um, and so they started an alternative ministry to basically do InterVarsity, but for a slightly more progressive audience, people who were going to, who wanted to be affirming, who wanted to be more, uh, you know, uh, embracing of, of more diversity in, in their groups. So, um, and I think, you know, from the start, you know, I mean, I should, I should probably, you know, mention, I, I know these folks pretty well because I was at university. I worked for university mm. for five years um, and I got to know the people at Incarnation fairly well. They're based out of Chicago. So I actually was at their launch, launch party down in Chicago when they first started. And I, I know the folks. They're they're all great people, and I I'm sad that they're um, they're stopping, but I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that it didn't work out for a number of reasons. And I think um, something I've talked a lot about. I mean, even back when it was first starting, I had these questions in my mind about how how is this ministry going to survive, uh, given the nature of church dynamics and politics in this country. Because, I mean, I, I think for a lot of us who grew up conservative evangelical, and I'm certainly one of those, um, <clears throat> you know, that process of transitioning out of those evangelical circles um, involved, uh, that it, it really involved for me a purging of, of ev all of the structures and forms that were mm. associated with that upbringing. And um, I mean, it was a gradual process. I went for, I was uh, on staff at a missional, you know, uh, emergent kind of church for a while outside of Philadelphia, and then they kicked me out. <laughs> and so I, I got progressively more progressive as I got fired from more and more institutions. And then, you know, eventually I became Episcopalian um, as these things go. <laughs> but, you know, I think, um, so... I mean, my journey, of course, is not, you know, paradigmatic for everybody. Of course, everyone has their own pathway through all this. But it did seem quite clear to me from the start that this was going to be a difficult road to tread for them because um, they're trying to basically raise money to support uh, a non-denominational student ministry. They don't have the institutions on the right that university has, nor do they have the mainline institutions because they have their own student groups. Mm -hmm. So you have this, you have this middle sector here of basically progressive evangelicals, or you know th people who have you know just left evangelical churches but aren't ready to join an alternative institution. That space in the middle is kind of what in incarnation was trying to to reach and tap into, and it it did not seem to me to be uh, a, a sizable enough or stable enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, pool to draw upon uh, to survive. And I think, so their story um, is, for me, uh, it's an entryway into a larger conversation regarding what are the changing dynamics 
of, of Christianity and especially evangelicalism in this country. And, um, is there, is there really a middle space, a middle zone that has staying power and stability to exist and to continue to flourish in that space? And I think trying to define what that space is, is part of what David and I, D Rob and I were trying to <laughs> figure out. Um, because it's not always entirely clear to me what that space actually is. What I mean, and I'm using incarnation as an example. I mean, but but we can talk about other things. I mean, you Mason are Solomon's porch. I mean, that's an example, sort of, I think, of of a similar kind of mm -hmm. space. Watershed is an example of this. Mm -hmm. Th these are, of course, there's a diverse range of churches and institutions within that middle zone. Mm -hmm. Um, but but I think trying to kind of nail down what that is, is is sort of what's on my mind and figuring out like, is there a future there? Does that have is there enough of a space there to build upon, right? Mm -hmm. And to to kind of draw upon for that. So anyway, that's that was the initiating uh, idea, but I think it obviously has a lot of um, spokes that kind of span out of that. For Rob, <laughs> what uh, what was your inspiration then to respond? Like, I, I know you two are good friends, so I know it wasn't like a response out of like anger or being upset. Uh, what was so then? What was like your inspiration to respond and, and sort of provide your voice in the conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, a little context uh, to kind of make this make sense. Um, two things. One, um, you know, obviously I've uh, I've mentioned. Uh, I work at one of these kind of middle zone spaces that Congdon is talking about. So on some level, there's a sort of personal or professional investment mm -hmm. um, that, that that's, to be honest, is quite frankly, it's 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 masking even a little bit of uh, personal insecurity. I, I, I mean, when I was uh, fired from a conservative evangelical church a number of years ago, and in between that experience and then coming to work at Watershed, I very much kind of had this. Uh, existential crisis where I was kind of like, you know, maybe I need to get out of ministry, you know, I need to find something a little more uh, routine or sustainable. And yet at the same time was was struggling to discern what else I actually know how to do. And so and, and so on some level, you, you know, David is speaking to a, a, a personal insecurity. Um, but the other kind of interesting or ironic piece of this is, in many ways, uh, David Congdon's own theological project, his work with uh, Rudolf Bultmann and Karl Barth and kind of the general school of dialectical theology from the 20th and now 21st century is, you know, it's my greatest theological influence. In many ways, mm -hmm. David Congdon um, and some of, these, uh, some of these other great 20th century thinkers via his work is giving me kind of the theological um, ammunition, kind of the theological backing or, you know, kind of, you know, kind of foundation to at least have some degree of optimism for these in-between spaces, these post or ex-evangelical spaces that retain something of a 
spiritual or even Christian identity without um, without you know being reduced to maybe a parachurch organization or a podcast or on the other end um, just go mainline or something like that. So so where I was kind of coming from was you know both a, a kind of a, a space of personal investment, but also you know also you know the person who I was having the conversation with and and not necessarily disagreeing with as far as our assessment of the situation, but maybe disagreeing in so far as our degrees of optimism about the situation mm-hmm. goes. Um, the great irony is it was largely, it's largely his work uh, that is fueling or at least giving <laughs> me a trajectory or pathway to maintain that optimism. And so that's kind of the, at least for me, that's kind of the funny piece of this is, is I wouldn't be able to have my position or maybe, maybe I would have found something else, but but I am standing in my position largely because I've been informed by a lot of the things David has written uh, in his books and on his blog and on, quite frankly, on Twitter. Well, Cogden, <laughs> I, you... I'll, I'll just chime in on that. I, mean, I appreciate that very much. I mean, but, uh, and, you know, I should actually, I should add, I, I fully recognize that. In fact, actually, um, it's, it's not lost on me at all that my work is in some ways better suited for and actually uh, is in some ways empowers and, and moves towards that kind of church environment. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I, my work is highly critical of a lot of institutional church structures. And, and so, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, I, I'm very critical of tradition, <laughs> very critical of uh, kind of traditional church doctrines and practices and norms. Um, and so to be an Episcopalian is sometimes <laughs> a funny thing. Um, and that's not, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've thought long and hard about that. I mean, I am Episcopalian. I fully embrace it. But um, I do so recognizing there's a bit of a paradox there. Um, and you know, when I first was working on my theological ideas, you know, t- a decade ago, uh, I actually had for a very short period of time uh, the idea of, of writing kind of basically a better version of what Ray Anderson did was a theology of emerging churches, right? A theology mm-hmm. of emerging mm-hmm. communities. Um, I, in some ways, my work was a, was an attempt to do that better mm. to do a, a, and I actually had that in mind. I mean, um, you know, 13, well, no, no, about 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, I was, I was crafting that in the language of using missional was the kind of language I was using because I was at Princeton and Daryl Gruder was there. But um but that was certainly on my mind. So uh to to have come to this to where I am now ecclesiologically or at least ecclesiastically I should say um is is a bit of a you know it's what I mean I think you're right. It is ironic in some ways. So um so I think maybe in some ways you have a better grasp of <laughs> what my project generates um, <laughs> in terms of church practices and life. Uh, so that's that's very helpful perspective to have. Yeah, and something that's interesting for me is is I mean David and I, Congdon and I have these conversations like on Facebook Messenger all the time because basically I'll I'll maybe preach a sermon or I'll have had a staff meeting. Or, or have had a conversation with a coworker, and it'll have been largely my whatever position I advocated or wherever I preached will have either like peppered in direct quotes, often not even from a Congdon book. Sometimes it's just a quote that he something he said to me on Facebook Messenger that I took a screenshot of, and you know, and then I quoted him in a sermon, or or you know, or I 
I used some sort of whether it's maybe Bolt Manian or um, or or Bardian or or some you know conception that he or or his his as he would say his theologically conjoined twin uh, Travis McMakin has kind of communicated <laughs> uh, communicated to me over the years, and and then I'll kind of report back to him, kind of like, hey, here is how this perhaps more abstract or esoteric idea that you you know that you said in the God Who Saves your most recent you know Congdon's most recently published book. Um, I'll kind of report back. Here's how it played out in real life. Here's how it played out pastorally. And I would say, by and large, I have been kind of thrilled with how much some of this stuff lands and how much of this stuff resonates. Is it because it puts and... those twelve-year-olds uh, right to sleep? <laughs> They're in those lock-ins, or you just get tired of them. You start reading the God Who Saves, and it just puts them you right guys out. Do... Do you guys do lock-ins at Solomon's Porch? Oh, I despise them <laughs> so much. They are. They are. Spawns of Satan. <laughs> I haven't done a lock-in yet. I've oh, got a, I've got a, I've got a pool party coming up in September, and Ooh. and uh, some maybe some laser tag in October, but no lock-ins yet. I'll uh, I'll, I'll report back when I when I when I've experienced that how uh, how the work of Rudolf Boltmann speaks to a lock-in. <laughs> well, lock-ins were my favorite time of youth group because they were dens of sin, and uh, <laughs> so, so that. W- this is actually potentially a good a good jumping off point to kind of get practical on this conversation because um, one thing that I've kind of reflected on since David and mine, Congdon mine's initial conversation um, has been specifically kind of kind of this this idea of this in between space or this ex or post evangelical space, um, particularly through the realm of of, of youth ministry and um, even even today you know we had the staff meeting where. Um, it was kind of a kind of a meta narrative, or kind of what is the culture of watershed, or kind of what is what are we trying? What is success for us? What are we trying to 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 accomplish here? And 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 ignoring some of the uh, implicit capitalistic undertones, um, kind of kind of just latent in that conversation, um, there was some you know it, it did allow I think for some really good inter staff reflection on our part of of you know you know what are we trying to do here if we're not you know if we're not trying to you know, convert our lost neighbors, you know, and stuff like that. And I, I've been kind of thinking critically about that for a few months now since I'm taking this position, specifically about, um, specifically about the realm of youth ministry. And, and is there anything that I am doing with the youth that is in some way unique or worth preserving or worth, you know, elevating or celebrating um, alongside, but also in distinction or in contrast with what they're getting at school or in clubs or on sports teams or through perhaps some sort of uh, parachurch or nonprofit uh, organization that they could be involved in. And, and I, I would say my response to that, you know, in, in, you know, six months in is a um, cautious, but, but increasingly optimistic. Yes. At least, I don't know, maybe at least for the next couple of decades, it seems like there is a space for this, or at least you, you know, at least with with in the realm of youth, you know, I, I I can I can I can name the value added. I guess that's what I'm saying.
I noticed mentioned, um, I think maybe by both of you in the thread, was, um, but both of you talked about, and, and both of you just now even, kind of talked about how ministries like Incarnation and churches like Watershed and Solomon's Porch sort of inhabit this middle space. And it, it, I think maybe part of the issue of why um, ministries and churches that sort of inhabit that middle space haven't taken off isn't necessarily because they're inhabiting the middle space. It's because that middle space tends to be a space that both of you addressed as maybe arriving too early. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that, about the possibility that that middle space is just a space right now where uh, faith, uh, faithful people, faithful Christians are in America are simply not ready for? Is that, is that something you sense? I mean, maybe we should back up a second, just kind of define what that middle space right, is right. a little more precisely. Okay. I think that there, that's part of the confusion. I think there's maybe two ways of looking at that. I mean, um, what, how I'm envisioning this is that we have on the, on the, you know, the far right, the traditional, the traditional evangelical institutions and churches and their, their forms of life and practices. And on the other side, I'm envisioning the traditional mainline institutions and their forms and their practices. So they're both traditional forms of church structures and life. One is predominantly non-denominational, but also there are uh, you know, denominational forms, but they tend to be more contemporary, more charismatic, um, a little bit more uh, loose with doctrine, a little bit looser with uh, they're just they're not they're looser with when it comes to tradition and history and all the rest, right? Mm-hmm. But they but they have their own forms. Um, so the middle space is maybe not the best way of def- defining or describing it, but right. the middle space I'm, in my vision here is one that takes some of the theology from the mainline side and some of the forms of from the conservative evangelical side and kind of tries to kind of unite them. So you have mm-hmm. a more contemporary form of church life, but more progressive theology and, and ethics. So that's that's how I'm thinking about it. But I mean, there are certainly a variety of ways we could approach there to think about that. I think, um, I mean, within that zone, you've got everything from, you know, the full-on nuns, N-O-N-E, you know, the kind of tr- religious disaffiliation, non-affiliation groups, to uh, to fairly, you know, I mean, there are churches and institutions that are are borderline evangelical, borderline mainline that kind of are just on the edge, right? They're kind mm-hmm. of, you know, peripheral to those to those categories. So, I mean, it's a broad and ambiguous category, but um, I, I, so I, yeah, I don't know. So I, I guess part of that part of the issue there is just understanding, you know, what is that space. Um, who exists in that space is part of a question for me too. And is that space a landing point or is that a transition to something else? And I think that's a question that's different for different people. I mean, for me, it was a transition, a transition point. Um, but I, because of my own training and, and educational you know, context, I was inclined to move to something that was a little more, for me, grounded in history, right? So something grounded that had something sort of connection to other larger communities and practices. Um, that 
but that same tendency has led many people to go into very conservative uh, denominational groups like, you know, the PCA or the or or ACNA or those those kinds of groups where. So anyway, I, that's, I'm rambling here a bit, but I mean, I think um, part of part of my interest in this conversation, in this topic is um, getting some clarity about what's going on in that middle space. Uh, and I think D Rob is right that there is, there's a youth element here, um, which is helpful. I think there's certainly, I mean, in my Episcopal church context, uh, it's, it's true. I mean, youth can disappear from like high school into through college and they come back to the church, you know, in their adulthood, you know, mm -hmm. so you have this kind of zone where they kind of dis disappear for, you know, 10 years or so. And, um, and that's a pretty typical phenomena in most mainline churches, from my experience. Um, you do kind of lose the youth for a period of time. They, uh, they mingle with their you know, non-denominational friends at, at school <laughs> for a bit, and then, and then they might come back later on, often when they're married or something. You know? <laughs> that's that's a, a pretty common trajectory. And I think that's indicative of this, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an age issue with the mainline churches. You know, it, we, uh, the mainline churches are predominantly, you know, 45 plus, you know, mm -hmm. 50 plus age-wise. You do, you do lose out on a significant uh, group of people. Um, so, yeah. Today we have Ellie here, and Ellie is the artist who's been featured throughout this episode. Um, and Ellie, you just recently released a new album. Um, would you consider an EP more? Uh, I believe it's technically an EP. Okay. I like to call it a project because I feel like there's a theme throughout, but right. yes, EP. So you just released it, and it's called Blossom and Bone, and it's absolutely gorgeous i was listening to it this morning and i i really loved it uh and yeah tell me about what it was like Thank for you. you to to release this I, I know you've released other um bits and pieces of music uh, but what was it like for you um with this particular album to release this was there a lot of anxiety behind it was it pure elation what was it like uh, yeah, I was really scared. This was the first time I released a project. So like a grouping of songs that I felt like were cohesive enough mm. uh, to go together. I've released a few singles or covers, but up until now, I've never really, uh, I was overwhelmed by the idea of like a full EP, but uh, it was great. I had such great um support and response from friends and family and mm -hmm. uh and the fact that anyone listened to it who I don't personally know was really amazing yeah. <laughs> um so it was great it it makes me want to do it again and uh, I am planning on on doing that again that's awesome 
I, I find your album title really interesting, Blossom and Bone. What was the thought process behind that title? Um, I am constantly, I, maybe obsessed is like a negative word, but I mean <laughs> it in a hopefully positive way here. Or maybe I'm just crazy, but I feel like I'm a bit obsessed with the cycle of um, birth, death, rebirth, mm. uh, and death again, and how that plays out in all of life, um, you know, on a grand scale of like my life playing now, but also in everyday mundane tasks, how the cycle um, begins again and ends. And uh, yeah, I was sort of kind of caught up with that idea and read lots of poetry around that. Yeah. Um, I found actually in Nashville in this little bookstore a uh, collection of poems written by uh, a professor and it was all around um, Georgia O'Keeffe's life and mm. artwork and what she talked about and uh, was sort of fixed on in her work and there's a lot of that like uh, literal skulls of animals with flowers like blooming out of them mm, uh, mm -hmm. that sort of spurred on more of the ideas around the tracks yeah so I i'm assuming that that cycle of death and birth and death and rebirth that is that a theme that you find come up throughout the songs on the album yeah absolutely um one of the songs is a cover it's called wild is the wind it was written for an old movie, uh, I think in the 50s. But that one, I wouldn't say totally fits in uh, mm. with the theme, you know, like the content of the lyrics, but maybe more just in uh, tone and style. But the rest of them, I feel like kind of touch on that. Um, Where to Begin was one of the first singles, and it's sort of looking at any process and wondering how to get in to it and mm. feeling overwhelmed with other people who are your age or younger who are finding success in something that mm. you want to do and um and then dealing with expectation and uh dealing with uh either loss or success in small ways or big ways um just how that all has that life cycle as well mm -hmm. for me at least what are some future projects that you've been thinking about are, are maybe you hoping to do some shows or tours on this album are you thinking already about a next album or some uh next music that you're hoping to put out what's what's sort of the future horizons for your for your artwork yes so um i recorded and released all of this independently so i didn't really plan I didn't know you should plan a bunch of shows which <laughs> kind of speaks to my amateur mindset around the first project uh and looking back I wish I would have I've played a few shows around it and it's really special each time uh I prefer smaller scenarios mm. like house shows or mm -hmm. dinners or some sort of like um intentional event mm. and that's been really special. I feel like sharing each time uh, has been really great for me and I hope good for those listening. Um, I would love to play more. I am currently trying to book more 
more shows and getting with more artists who I really like and respect and mm-hmm. try to open for some people. And then, yes, I'm already sort of actually this week just put together another five demos that I feel like have a, another theme and a mm. new direction and I can sort of chase after those now. You've sort of talked about a lot of like the new music um, and, and you've talked about some of the themes that you've explored in your new music. How do you see this new album? What's its relationship to your past music? Do you find yourself um, thinking about your new music as, oh, this is like significantly better? Or maybe you find yourself um, looking back to the music that you've recorded in the past and thinking, you know, like there's a nostalgia factor to it that um, you really appreciate, even though it may not be of the quality that your newer music might have. Like, have you found yourself sort of comparing or finding like a relationship between your older music and your newer music? Yeah, it's really hard not to compare what I'm working on now with, you know, this last project, but I'm trying actually not to compare Mm. as as much. I feel like I can get stuck in a, well, it's not this thing that I did once, so, you know, I don't know if it's a good direction. I'd rather sort of uh, dive into the new project with um, kind of no bias or Mm -hmm. no... uh, nothing to compare to though I think tonally I like the same things um and hopefully there will be strings I love live strings that sound cinematic and hopefully horns um I'm hoping to have maybe a little bit more fun in the writing process I feel like the first one feels so like I've had my whole life to write this so it better Mm. be good you know Uh, so now that that's out of the way, I am trying to approach it more lightheartedly, mm. though I'm not, um, historically great at doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are ways that people can get connected to you and your music? Yes. So I, well, if it's not dumb <laughs> to say Instagram, it's <laughs> such a, it's such a useful tool for right. musicians. Um, so really, that would be a great way at Ellie Schmidley. I post um, snippets of songs. I post about shows, merch, mm-hmm. that sort of. And I, that's the first place I post new music. So, um, And then if you want to actually listen to the tracks, it's on Spotify, Apple, all of the streaming mm-hmm. you know, sites. Awesome. Well, thank you yeah. so much for sharing about your music. I, I know that I, re- I really enjoyed it um, this morning at sort of put uh it launched me in a, in a good mood and a, in a into a really good day so thank you so much good. for sharing about your music and i hope that you um find success into this sort of first real project <laughs> thank you thanks so much for listening and for featuring some of the songs So maybe one way to look at this is, are we saying that that middle space, however we define it, is kind of meeting the needs 
kind of reaching a certain demographic, like age demographic, generational group, right? Um, that you kind of age out of, right? Like you kind of like it's meeting that particular group, but but they're you're assuming that they're going to kind of move out of that, you know? That they, they you know, it's like college. You go there for a bit, mm-hmm. you kind of hang out in those circles, and then you move on. Is that how we think about it? I mean, that's I'll just leave that there and kind of yeah. raise that question, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so I'll speak to that in, in in a moment, at least from my experience at Watershed. Um, but but to kind of get back to to kind of the the kickoff question there that Mason had for us, which was, you know, where where was I coming at with the suggestion of of maybe something like incarnation was was too soon or too early? And I was kind of coming at that from a couple angles. One of them is what Congdon addressed just a moment ago when it comes to the age question. And as I'm kind of looking at uh, you know the millennial generation, and then those who are coming after us. You know this this first um, kind of this first digital native generation. Um, there's a there's another youth pastor. I think you guys you know interact with him on Twitter, uh, John Thornton up in mm-hmm. uh, Winston Salem. He and I have had a chance to, to hang out recently, and and uh, he has a a really good um, book review in Commonwealth Magazine that just came out. Uh, where he's reviewing um, uh, the book called Kids These Days. Uh, I believe the author's name is uh, Max Harris. And basically, it's this idea that uh, the millennial generation uh, is the most commodified generation in history. So, you know, at the youngest, youngest ages, they are essentially turned into human capital. And everything that they do is commodified in some way to be hyper-competitive. And everything is kind of kind of tilted towards or, or nudged towards... Um, you know, just monetization and 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 valuizing, you know, everything that they do from academics to sports to social relationships and and, and the like, and, and this just being one example, uh, perhaps one prominent or even dominating example of why our generation is skeptical of institutions, for example. And so, and so, I do think a, a huge part of this is a generational thing. Is is you have these generations coming up that are skeptical of traditional institutions, many of whom are maybe even too young to have been burned or have the baggage that some older millennials or Gen Xers may have had, whether it's through the Catholic Church, the Evangelical Church, or even mainline expressions. Um, our church has plenty of those people as well. Um, we're pretty. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we have a pretty big contingent of of of. Uh, of boomers and of Gen Xers at our church, and a lot of them are the ones who are coming at this more from a deconstruction perspective, where where, where they have some received or inherited faith tradition. Um, I'd say I'd say of those, you know, we're about half evangelical, and then the rest, the other half, is split between your Catholics and your mainliners and and, and whatnot. But then we have this this younger generation, the millennials, and maybe younger Gen Xers, and then whatever's coming after millennials, you know, whatever that's called these days. Um, who, you know, your Generation Z or whatever, who they're not so much deconstructing, they are constructing a faith, constructing a spirituality in kind of this neutral zone, or at least or at least relative to those of us who are deconstructing or walking away from something. Um, you know, and so and so and so to some degree that my 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 optimism or at least my hope at this too soon has to do with I don't want to call it a blank slate because there's no such thing as a blank slate, but I do feel like there's this this opportunity constructively, you know, even uh, to to be honest, I don't I don't know if the church is is fully even reckoned with the implications of the internet. I mean, I joke with with Congdon mm-hmm. all the time, like, yeah, I'm in seminary, but I'm, my, my seminary program is primarily intercultural studies and 
a lot of pastoral leadership pieces and stuff. Uh, a lot of my theology is is um, received from long conversations mm-hmm. of of you know grad students and, and PhD students who blogged ten years ago and and, and <laughs> just put their entire academic journey on the internet for for people like me to read. And so and so that's half of it. That's that that's the optimistic <laughs> half. The, the other half, the the more sobering or pessimistic half is is it might be too soon because this this space still has some some house cleaning to do. And, you know, um, Mason, you know, you and I are part of churches that are uh, related to uh, organizations uh, like Open in the past and Convergence and now WIF. Uh, for those who don't know, WIF is a kind of, I guess we've launched or soon to launch uh, kind of uh, parachurch network that is kind of working to create and curate uh, resources for churches and faith communities and individuals who are kind of occupying this space that we're discussing here. And, um, and you know, a topic of conversation as, as different churches in this group are, are dialoguing and networking is we still have a lot to do to dismantle some of the patriarchal structures we have, some of the, um, the predominantly white and predominantly male and predominantly cisgender and, and, uh, and straight uh, structures that we have. And like, even in, even in watershed, uh, you know, um, you know, our ongoing conversations are how our representation, for example, needs to catch up to our ideology or to our thinking or to our convictions. You know, you know, we are a still predominantly male-led, predominantly straight-led, predominantly white-led church, and it's great that everyone in the room agrees that women and the LGBTQ community and, and uh, people of color need to be more visibly represented and non-visibly, you know, in behind the scenes leadership roles. Um, but it's another thing to actually, you know, take the time to do the work. And I, I, I don't want to cast too general or too broad of strokes here, but I do think a lot of the predominant and prominent um, churches and existing organizations that are currently occupying this space um, we know we still have to do the work, but we still have to do the work. And, and until that happens, um, I think quite fairly for a lot of these younger people and a lot of people who, um, you know, to be honest, a lot of um, non-white, non-straight, non-heteronormative, you know, fill in the blank, a lot of these othered or marginalized groups that never fit within evangelicalism, um, they are quite rightly still holding us at arm's length mm-hmm. until some of that work is done, you know, the jury's still out on that. And that's, that's perfectly reasonable and perfectly right for them to do. And I think there's some optimism there and, and there's some energy, um, you know, from, from those people and from those groups, you know, wanting this to be a rallying point and a community that they can be a part of. But, um, but that, that's the area where I'm, where I'm still, I, I, I'm hopeful. Um, but, but we got a lot of work to do before, before that, um, before we can, you know, kind of say definitively that, all right, yeah, we're we're moving in the right direction there. I mean, so does the main line for that matter. I mean, that's yeah. it's uh, a nightmare in some ways. Um, it's, uh, I mean, there's it's great in, in many respects, but yeah, we cut, we have a lot a lot of work to do to uh, to remotely match our rhetoric. Um, so, I mean, it's that's that's across the board. The issues you're raising are are absolutely true um, everywhere. Um, but I think one thing you said. Um, uh, you, 
regarding kind of the the distrust of institutions, right? I, I it reminds me of how I and I think people who are sort of in my boat moved into more high church spaces. Um, and I'm thinking people like Rachel Evans is a more mm-hmm. prominent example, but there are many people I knew from Wheaton uh, who became Anglican or Episcopalian mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think, I wonder if you could kind of, you know, this is overly simplistic, but you could possibly distinguish between two large groups and subdivide these, of course, but one group, and that's the group I was in, um, we we were disenchanted by evangelicalism because of its shallowness, because of its rootlessness, because of its intellectual vacuity, its inability to address anything serious, any any serious questions of meaning in life, mm-hmm. um, and its uh, kind of use use its use of superficialities and kind of hallmarkization of Christianity as a way of uh, that's their, that was their way of addressing you know the problems of life, and so we a lot of us ran to high church mainline spaces because we found a conversation that was ongoing that was rich and had depth. And now, I happen to have left leaning sympathies that allow me to find the right kind of communities. But many of my friends, I, I will grant, had the same background, same I- issues with evangelicalism who ran to super conservative churches. Uh, mm. They went, they almost went more conservative. They, you know, they went to the, the, the very conservative Orthodox Presbyterian churches or, you know, Anglican churches with their African bishops and you know, all the rest. They were trying to, you know, all those groups that were um, that was where they went and they they addressed that problem, but they went to very conservative routes. Um, so that was so we kind of divided the two different paths, right? But we all had the same originating issue. But the other group, the other side of it, is a group that had their problem with evangelicalism is it's a toxic, damaging place of spiritual abuse, right? And I think for that group, um, their reaction is not to run to a high church place that's gonna that that scares them even more or even or just as much they would run to either no church at all right or to something only marginally religious marginally christian maybe you know and and that and they might find themselves at a watershed or or a place like that um but that group their reaction is more visceral it's more emotional it's more rooted in these kind of uh personal attack right personal abuse their 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 very personhood is is at stake right for me it was mostly an intellectual issue is most my my leaving evangelicalism uh was not because uh you know i had it, it, it i didn't have the toxic toxic experience that many of my friends had that i came to know later on mm-hmm. um and, that, and that's you know no doubt because of you know i i was a straight male right you know living mm-hmm. in fairly protected privileged circles right and i didn't have a lot of the the harm done to me that many people i got to know later did um and so my reaction has been different Mm -hmm. Um, but i think that's that has allowed me to move into a different space without the same reaction to those kinds of liturgical uh contexts Whereas I might not have been able to do that, you know, in a different situation. I, I don't know how much of that is is 
at play here, but I do wonder how, you know, if that's a, a further dynamic complicating that. What you just said is a narrative I certainly recognize in our congregation. I recognize uh, we do this thing um, about six or seven times a year called preface, and it's a it's a six week. It's kind of our version, you know. If you're familiar with you know kind of an evangelical megachurch of like a like a starting point or a, or, a, or a newcomers class or something like that, and and in a space like Watershed, it's less about here's our doctrinal statements and our values. It's to be honest, it, it, it's more of a um, introduction to the journey of deconstruction. Sort of uh, the, the the text for it is Rob Bell's Velvet Elvis, and you know you know kind of just an easy read. Which to be honest, for a lot of our people, almost comes across as too antiquated or conservative at times, which is kind of an <laughs> irony of, of Bell's position relative to the evangelical <laughs> establishment at this point. But um, but really, more than anything, it's an opportunity. It's a dialogue-driven, conversational-driven space for people to kind of um, reorient their thinking away from whether it be doctrinal rigidity or or some of the ethical or kind of boundary-making uh, experiences or boundary-keeping experiences that they may have had in more conservative or traditional settings. And... What's been interesting that I've observed, and I, I have not been around for the majority of Watershed's history. I'm two years in, six months on staff, but even in the short amount of time that I've been there, I have noticed a subtle shift in what predominantly makes up the people in that space. And it's shifting away, and I, and I alluded to this earlier, but it, to some degree, it's shifting away from the people who had... Um, the sort of toxic experience that David's talking about, which I feel like is a lot of people at Watershed, and more and more we're having kind of an even split between that crowd and people who um, people who discovered maybe spirituality through something like the Liturgist podcast. Mm -hmm. It's not just that the Liturgist podcast or or something like that, you know, you know, stuff that Peter Enns is doing, you know, with with um, or even stuff that like you know a lot of a lot of Mason subject matter here. That has proven to be, you know, podcasts and, and kind of online communities like that have proven to be a refuge, I think, for a lot of those people who uh, Congdon and David just described, you know, who are running from these toxic situations, uh, latent in evangelicalism. But there also seems to be an increasingly large contingent of people who are, who are discovering or experiencing community-based spirituality for the first time through these resources. And then they're finding or gravitating to a space like Watershed wanting to now in some organized congregational faction you know you know fashion expand those relationships beyond merely online conversations in a facebook subgroup or something like that and so and so we're finding 
And so we're finding more and more people drawn to our community, drawn to kind of organized uh, justice initiatives, you know, and things like that from that space, not just leaving a previous space, but coming into maybe a church space for the very first time. And I, I, I wouldn't say it's so much that it's becoming by any means the majority of the people in our congregation or the majority of people kind of coming to Watershed once or twice a month, calling it their church home or their spiritual community. But, but, but there's a noticeable increase, even in the last couple of years, I feel like, um, from what it used to be. It used to all be people running from what, what felt to them to be a dead, boring, antiquated, anti-intellectual, pretty much the full gamut of the two groups that David uh, Congdon described a moment ago, to we're seeing more and more people coming for more generative or constructive reasons. And that's intriguing to me and, and, and exciting to me. Um, and to some degree, that's, that's where I'm seeing a lot of Congdon's own work really kind of take on pastoral life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that would help. I mean, that, that addresses in some ways Mason's question about maybe this being too soon. I mean, I think, you know, we could, I think there's like with that in mind, you could definitely see a possibility in which the future is more people coming out of those spaces, right? People who have kind of grown up in a fully digitally immersive existence who are atomized and separated from other people. They don't have bodily contact with a community of, of other, mm-hmm. other people, right? So I mean, I think seeing a church meet that particular need, not necessarily a need for salvation in the traditional sense or whatever, but a need for genuine human community of people who are not just like-minded or just digital faces, right? But mm-hmm. actually have you know human bodily interactions of like flesh and blood, mm-hmm. and neighbor, right? That I mean, I think that's a that's a very compelling reason. To be a church uh, in this time, in this age, and I think that's a. I mean, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I mean, insofar as my theology has pastoral legs, I would hope that it connects to that to kind of that context. Um, that's certainly who I'm speaking for, um, and that's who I have in mind. Um, <clears throat> but it's interesting. I, I think, you know, if, if I had encountered a space like that ten years ago, then that's maybe where I would be. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I think maybe I am too soon. I came along right, right, right. <laughs> too, too early for that. <laughs> I mean, when I was coming through seminary uh, and kind of, I, I had disavowed evangelicalism coming out of Wheaton. Um, I, I mean, when I, when I went to seminary, I really had, you know, the, the, the only remotely, you know, <laughs> progressive like spaces that existed were were they 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 were still not even open and affirming, right? Mm-hmm. They were they were they barely even allowed women to be involved. I mean, they had were nominally you know women could speak, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and it was and, and all you did was you just you you dropped out some of the songs you used to sing, you put put in some new ones, right? And otherwise, it was exactly the same, right? There was not there was nothing significantly different theologically you know liturgically social you know socially politically there were a few differences maybe you could count on them voting democrat but you know that's a, yeah. that was about it uh it was not there was no intentionality or thought process put into like like how are we reconstructing this space mm-hmm. at a different conception of what it means to be christian right that that was not on the table 
Um, and, and, and when I put that on the table for some people, I got kicked out, right? You know, that's where I went. Well, let's camp there for a second. Let's, let's, I don't, how are we doing on time, Mason? We're, is this just, we're, yeah, just keep going. Keep this going. is super interesting. Swallowing fables Chewing my pencils down Don't worry, it's not that I didn't want you all to be titillated by D-Rob's and D-Kong's seductive voices any longer. We do keep going, but you'll have to wait for the rest of this juicy conversation until the second part of this episode, which will be released November 28th, 2018. I hope that episode left you satisfied and fulfilled, so much so that you have no desire to ever listen to another podcast episode of any show ever again. If you would like to connect with David Roberts, David Cogden, and Ellie Schmidley and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmenega.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction, now and forever. So be it.
Mm-hmm.